Daniel chapter 9, hear the word of the Lord. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him, and he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. And as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all, to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around. Now, therefore, O Lord God, Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. 
Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts are acceptable, be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the many great things about having children is that they, they tend to keep us honest if we listen to them. Because they remember what we have said. They remember the promises, even if they were promises that we made not thinking about it. They will bring them back to us, and they will say things like this. But Dad, you said. But Mom, you said. And they will remind us of what we said. And I see the parents nodding their heads. They will remind us. And they will call upon us to do what? To keep our word. To keep our promises. What we have in this text is basically Daniel saying to God, Dad, you said, you said, are you going to keep this promise that you said? And when are you going to keep this promise? How are you going to keep this promise? You see, what Daniel was doing was he was reading the Bible. He was reading the Bible, that much of it that he had in his day, which was quite a lot of what we call our Old Testament. And he was reading particularly in the book of Jeremiah, and he, he found promises of the Father in Jeremiah, and he was saying to God, God, you said you were going to do this. When are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? And so we have Daniel's plea to God, and we also have the response. I'm dividing it up into the context, which is important to understand. The confessions, the requests, and then the response. So we, the, the context comes out in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. And if you've been following along in this series, we've already met Darius the Mede. He was the one who received the kingdom in, uh, when Belshazzar, the foolish king of Babylon, the co-regent of Nabonidus, when he was having a party as the, 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 Mede, uh, the Mede and Persian armies were around the city of Babylon, and it fell that night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. So this is the, the first year. This is the pivot year. This is the change, the end of the Babylonians, the beginning of the Medes and the Persian kingdom. Now, that's important because that's, that's a break. Who were those who sent Judah into exile? Babylon. But what happened, what happened to Babylon? As we said, all gone. 
Babylon was all gone. And now, uh, reading about the scripture, Jeremiah is saying, okay, the ones who sent us into exile, they're gone. Now, this might be an important time for God to begin to do something new with us. And we find out here that not only was Daniel a man of prayer, we found that out in chapter 6, didn't we? He was a man of prayer because three times a day he would turn towards Jerusalem and he would pray, no matter what the, the, the laws said. But now we find he's not only a man of prayer, but he was a man of the Word of God. He was studying the Word of God. And so we should, we should take this as a, an excellent example, because this is, this, is the, this is what believers do throughout the centuries. We are to pray and we are to study God's Word. And he read in Jeremiah, you can look at Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. You can look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, that the exile of the Jews from their native land, Jerusalem, Judea, it would last for 70 years. Verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, Lord, you said must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. 70 years. Now, Daniel had been deported to Babylon, we think, in 605 B.C. 605 B.C. That was 66 years earlier, because the first year of Darius, see if you can keep these numbers, I think I have some of these numbers on the, the outline. The first year of Darius was 539 B.C., so 539 B.C. So this is 66 years later after Daniel was exiled. So this is getting close to the 70 years. Now, if you back up from 605 B.C. when Daniel is, is reading this, and you go back 70 years, I'm sorry, um, if you go back from, yes, from 609 B.C. Okay, let me get make sure I'm getting these right. Okay, 70 years earlier, um, in, yes, if you take 539, and you have to add 70, and you get to 609, nothing momentous happened that year, as far as we know. Nothing momentous happened. So if you go back from 539, and you go back 70 years to 609, nothing momentous happened. And so this is a clue. This is a clue that these 70 years may be representative. They may be round numbers. They may be symbolic. Okay, because if you go back 70 from when Daniel is praying, you don't find anything really significant. 66, yes, so maybe this is these are round numbers. Now, um, there are a couple of numbers going on here. If you multiply 7 times 10, you get what? 70, right. So these numbers are uh, interesting because they're numbers that come out up through Scripture. They seem to be numbers of completeness. So if you take a number of completeness and multiply it by number of completeness, what do you get? Completeness, right, exactly. And also, more or less, how long do people live in the Old Testament? According to Psalm 90, how many years, more or less? 70 years. So this is, this is a lifespan. And so that's the first clue that these may be either round numbers or symbolic numbers. Now, that's kind of confirmed with a couple other references, and I'll, I'll give you these references. You can look them up later. They're in the notes. Second Chronicles chapter 36 verses 20 and 21, also refer to these 70 years, but they refer to, it apparently, the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. to the rise of Persia in 539 B.C., which are only 47 years. 
But it's referring to this period as the 70 years, apparently. Only 47 years. And then we find in Zechariah, Zechariah 1.12, 20 years later, 20 years after 539. So in 519, 20 years later, he's still referring to these 70 years as if they were still running. So it looks like there's some flexibility about these 70 years, that they were representative of the complete time, a lifespan of the people of God in exile. And when will this lifespan of exile be over? That's the question. Now, what was Daniel's response? Daniel's response was to pray, to fast, and to repent. Verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, this is fascinating, and it's an important lesson about prayer. Because he read in Scripture that God had promised to do something, right? And um, he believed that God would do that. And yet he still prayed. He still prayed. So he believed in God's sovereignty, and he also believed in prayer. Sometimes people pit those against each other. If God is sovereign, then why pray? But you can extend that. If God is sovereign, why do anything at all? But you see, in Scripture, these things are laid upon us to do because God is sovereign not only over the ends, but also the means of getting to those ends. And one of those means is what? Prayer. God responds to the prayers of his people. He also believed in praying Scripture. Praying Scripture. We're not going to be able to do it in one sermon and looking at this long prayer, but this prayer is full of Scripture references and full of Scripture allusions. It is one long prayer of saying, Lord, you said. Lord, you said. Lord, you said. And if we are basing on our prayers on what the Lord has already said that he will do, then we can be certain that he will answer those prayers. Now, the first part of his prayer is confession. And he says in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Now, Daniel prayed as part of the people of God. He said, I prayed, there, there are three different words that are used to refer to God. There is the word Lord, Master. There is the word God. And there is the word Lord, which in our modern English translations has all capital letters. And that is the, the personal name of God, sometimes pronounced Yahweh. And so he's, he's Master, he is God, and he is, has a personal name. And that personal name is for whom? That personal name is for his people. And so he begins his prayer as part of the people with whom God made a covenant, a pact. And so he prayed as part of those people. And he says, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Then he says, we have sinned. We have sinned. We are your covenant people. You have made a relationship with us. You keep your steadfast love with us. But in contrast, we have sinned. We have acted wickedly. We have done wrong. We have rebelled. We have turned aside from your commandments and your rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. 
we, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. And so he confesses as one of them. Now, in the book of Daniel and in the rest of Scripture, we don't read of a single sin of Daniel. We don't read of a single sin. We don't know about any of his sins. But he was praying as one of the people of God and not distancing himself and saying, those people over there are so terrible, Lord. He is identifying himself with the people of God. And if Daniel is as righteous as he appears in Scripture, which we believe, then he would be very conscious of his own sins. He would be most acutely conscious of his own sins because it is those who know God best, who know his word best, who are most conscious of their own sins. And so this is not play acting on Daniel's part. He was one who knew the scripture, and he says, Lord, yours is the righteousness. And knowing God's righteousness, knowing God's law, Daniel was acutely aware of his own sins. It's those who don't know God who think that they're good people. It's those who know God who understand that they're sinners. That's how John presents it in, in 1 John. He says, if we walk in the light, what does that light do? That light cleanses us, but that light also illumines us. And if we say we're without sin, then we don't know him. Because if we're getting closer to the light, then we will be more and more aware of the filth that is in us. And we see Daniel very honestly confessing his sins along with the sins of the people. Now, he knew that their sin contradicted God's character. Verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near, those who are far, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Our kings, our princes, our fathers, we have sinned against you. And so there's a contradiction here. He says, our sins, our rebellion, contradict your Righteousness To you belongs righteousness, to us belongs shame. But notice something here. He realized that the character of God, there was a problem with sin because of the character of God, because of God's righteousness. But notice that his only hope is God's character. Look at verse, look at verse 8. To, you, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, etc. Then verse 9. To the Lord our God belongs what? Mercy and forgiveness. You see, he goes before God and says, you, O oh God, are righteous, and therefore our sins are a problem. But you, O oh God, are also merciful and forgiving. And so we take hope. These are the two poles of confession. You see, without recognizing God's righteous, we don't have anything, anything to confess. We haven't done anything wrong if God is not righteous. But if God is righteous, there is a problem with our sins, and we need to confess those sins. But why bother? confessing our sins if he is righteous and will simply destroy us because of our sins, because of his righteousness. You see, we need to depend also on the fact that he is merciful and forgiving. Why go to him if he is not righteous? Why go to him if he is not merciful and forgiving? But if he is righteous and if he is merciful and if he is forgiving, we have a, a triple motivation to go to God because he can and he will forgive us for our sins. Now, he recognized, as he goes on, and here you see he's referring to Scripture time and time again, he recognizes that 
there was no surprise. The exile should have been no surprise at all. God had announced centuries before, centuries before, that if his people turned aside from him, he would send them into exile. Read Deuteronomy. And he knew Deuteronomy well. He not only knew Jeremiah and the prophets that were had preached already, but he knew about what we call the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. And look at verse 10. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us. What words? Read Deuteronomy. Those words. He knew those words. And here he said with some trembling, Lord, you said, you said this is no surprise to us. You said this was going to happen, and we rebelled, and you did exactly what you said you were going to do in the books of Moses. And then he says, even though we knew those writings, verse 13, even though we knew the book of Moses, the books of Moses, the law of Moses, we haven't entreated the favor of the Lord our God. We haven't turned from our iniquities. We haven't gained insight from your truth. Therefore, Verse 14, the Lord has kept ready the calamity. What calamity? The one he promised, the one he talked about in Deuteronomy, and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Then there's a pivot. The confession pivots towards request. Maybe in verse 15 or 16 or 17. But he says, and now, O Lord, our God, in 15 and 17, now, therefore, O Lord, our God. And look at how he argues here. Verse 15. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and done wickedly. He's saying, Lord, you've done this before. You made us your people. By bringing us out of Egypt. You've already brought us out of exile once. And you made a name for yourself. By bringing us out of Egypt. There's a precedent for what I'm asking here Lord. There's a precedent for what you've promised. You've done it before. You can do it again. And then. He did something. Something like what Moses did. He, he recognized. That this wasn't just about God's people. This was about God's reputation among the nations. This was about what other people would think of God. And if you go back and look at how Moses prayed with God, he was very bold. When God wanted to destroy the people in the desert because they'd rebelled against him again, Moses intercedes and he says, Lord, you can't do that. Because you promised to bring your people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And if you don't do that, Think what other people will say about you. They will say, he couldn't do it. And we can't let that happen now, can we? That's how he argues. And here we find Daniel arguing something like that as well. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn aside from your city, your holy hill, 
because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Lord, people are saying things about you that are not true, and we cannot let that go on. People are saying things about you that, that you're not as, as, as strong as the gods of Babylon. You're not as strong as the gods of Mede, Mede, the Medes and the Persians. They're saying things about you that you've walked away from your people. You're not fulfilling your promises. Lord, we cannot let that continue. You see, this is for your holy hill. This is for your city, Jerusalem. This is for your name, O God. And in, in recognition of what's at stake here, not just the, the benefit of God's people, but, but the glory of God's name, he goes on and he prays. He prays and he pleads. Verse 17, Now therefore, O Lord our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. And then after that, he piles up petitions here, even as he has piled up confessions, hasn't he? We have sinned, we have rebelled, we have turned aside, and now he piles up petitions. He says, turn away your anger and your wrath. Hear my prayers. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary. That should be familiar to us. You remember that, that blessing that God had given to Moses' brother Aaron back in Numbers chapter 6? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord do what? Make his face shine upon you. And here he's saying, Lord, shine your face on your sanctuary once again. Show your favor to us. Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see. And then in the middle, in the middle of this, this passionate plea for mercy, he makes explicit the basis of his petition. In verse, verse 18, he says at the end, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Did you catch that? He's not coming and saying, Lord, we've really cleaned up our act. We're really not so bad after all. We're really doing a pretty good job here. So we really think you should do this for us. He doesn't plead anything of their righteousness. He pleads God's name, God's character, and God's mercy. You see, this is a, a fundamental thing that, that we need to understand in all ages. And that is, how can we stand before God? On what basis? On what plea? And you see, this is the great problem of religion in the world. It's this, that, that most people, most religions are coming to their God or gods and saying, Oh Lord, receive us, accept us because of what we have done. You have given us your laws, you have given us your norms, you have given us your rules, and we've done a pretty good job of keeping those at least better than those people. And so you should look at us with favor. You should accept us. That's the fundamental. That's the fundamental error in approaching God. You see, we dare not. We dare not go before God, pleading our own righteousness because we do not have the kind of righteousness that our righteous God demands. And what is that? It's a perfect righteousness. 
So we ought not dare to bring our shoddy attempts at righteousness and plea that God would accept us on their basis, but rather on the basis of his mercy. I don't know if Paul was thinking about, I don't know if Paul was thinking about Daniel's prayer, but in Titus chapter 3, verse 3 and following, he wrote this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works that we had done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us through Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It sounds a whole lot like Daniel, doesn't it? Not our righteousness, Lord, your mercy. Not our good deeds, Lord, but your grace. If you if you have any inkling of, of trying to get right with God, if that is, is one of the things you want to do, and I'm, I'm assuming that the fact that you're here indicates that you have some concern about your relationship with God, then go to God on the basis of His mercy. Go to God on the basis of His grace. Go to God on the basis of what He has done in Jesus Christ, not on the basis of what you think you have done to please Him. Now, apparently boldened, emboldened by this consideration of God's mercy, Daniel pulls out all the stops in verse 19. This is the crescendo of his prayer. And he is, he's, he's, he's pleading desperately. And his prayers are no longer eloquent. His prayers are, are urgent and short and pleading. Verse 19, O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is all about you, Lord, and we need you to act, and we need you to act now as your desolate people. That's the, that's the prayer. And by the way, if you want to learn to pray, spend some time in Daniel chapter 9. And if you don't know what to pray, pray Daniel chapter 9. It'll teach you how to confess, and it'll teach you how to plead, plead with God. And now we have the response. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God and the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. There weren't sacrifices, but... They were stopped because the temple was in ruins. But at the time when there should have been, he made me understand, speaking and saying, Daniel, I've come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. He arrived to answer Daniel's question. And what was Daniel's basic question? Remember this. When will the 70 years be over? So he came to answer that, that question. 
And he received a lightning fast response to his prayers, didn't he? So it says here, it says here, he explains, he says, as soon as you started praying, there was a word that was given out. And I have, I have gotten here as soon as I can. How about that for an answer to prayer? Immediate, lightning fast answer to prayer. After 66 years of praying three times a day. Remember that. This is a lightning fast answer to prayer. And it's a lightning fast answer to prayer after a lifetime of prayer. So remember those two things. You have have things that you're praying for and and you want them now. And, And maybe you feel like you won't survive much longer if you don't have them now. And I'm guessing that's how Daniel felt through those 66 years of exile. And then he got his prayer. And when that prayer came answered, it was fast. So keep praying until God answers. And here's the answer in verses 24 to 27. Now, um, this answer is one of the hardest sections of Daniel and one of the hardest sections of the Old Testament. And it has produced many many different interpretations. Um, So let's dive in and and see what we can do here. The answer, verse 24. Seventy sevens are decreed about your people in your holy city. That's what it says, seventy sevens. This is translated at what? Seventy weeks. Now many consider these sevens, it just says seventy sevens. Many consider these sevens to be sevens of years, weeks of years. But the text doesn't say that. And there have been some very ingenious attempts to make everything line up with 490 years. And and those have generally failed. We also should remember the only other time, as far as I know, where 70 times 7 is mentioned in Scripture is in Matthew and related passages, Matthew 18, 21 and 22, where Jesus says, or Peter rather, says to Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to, up to seven times? And what does Jesus say? Seventy times seven. Now, what did Jesus mean by seventy times seven? When he gets to 491, all bets are off. No more forgiveness. Is that what he meant? No. He meant what? All of them. All of them. And so here we have another 70 times 7. Now, the answer goes well beyond what Daniel asked. Daniel wanted to know what? When are the 70 years up? And he referred to Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah talks about those 70 years, but that's just a detail in Jeremiah. And the answer goes way beyond what, what Daniel had asked about. And it's as, if, it's as if Gabriel were saying, oh, you've been reading Jeremiah. You want to know when Jeremiah's promises, God's promises in Jeremiah will be fulfilled. Well, let me remind you that it's not just a question of 70 years and you get back from the exile. Let me read you, let me read you from Jeremiah 31 some of, some of the promises that come through Jeremiah. 
Chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, Jeremiah said a whole lot more than just, after 70 years, you're coming back to the land. And this is, this is something like an 18-year-old girl asking her dad, Hey, Dad, I remember you said something about getting me a car uh, when, when I was an adult. When, when do you think that will be fulfilled? And it's like the father sitting down and saying, I'll tell you about the car. But you remember I also talked about college tuition, and I even threw in a master's degree, and I even threw in a wedding, and I threw in a down payment on your house as well. Remember all that? Yeah, yeah, I'll get you the car. I'll get you the car, but, but there's a whole lot more that I want to do for you, my beloved daughter. And it's as if that's what the answer is. You want to know about the 70 years? I'll tell you about the 70 years, but I want to tell you about much, much more that God wants to do for you. And so... What do we have here? Well, if we go to verse 24, what are those things that God wants to do for his people? It says in 70 weeks are decreed about your people. And so what's he's doing here? He's saying, you want to know about 70 years? I'm going to tell you about 70 sevens. I'm going to multiply this out. So you want to know about 70? I'm going to tell you about 490. I'm going to tell you about the whole kit and caboodle, the whole thing. 70 sevens are decreed about your people in your holy city to do what? Three negatives, three positives. Take away three things, give three things. First one, to finish the transgression all over. No more transgression. To put away, put, to put an end to sin, sin taken care of. To atone for iniquity, taking away transgression, sin, and iniquity. Gone. Take them out. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Here's the first positive. To seal both vision and profit, the second positive, and to anoint a most holy place. You see, this is the this is the master's degree, this is the wedding, this is the down payment on the house. It's all thrown in here together. You want to know about the, the seven years of exile? Okay. I'm gonna go and do you many, many more times that. I'm gonna give you seventy sevens to take away these things. You've confessed all this iniquity, this sin, this rebellion. I'm going to take it out. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to atone for it. And I'm going to bring in righteousness. I'm going to seal, uh, the, seal the, the prophecy, the, the vision, the word. And I'm going to anoint a holy something. It's translated here, a holy place. It may be a holy one. Now, we know from the New Testament how God did this. And so this becomes a fixed point in our interpretation. If we're Christians, we know how God did this. How did God take care of iniquity? How did he atone for sin? Well, we know that he did so by the sacrifice of his own son. How did God introduce everlasting righteousness and give the gift of righteousness before God to all who believe in him? He did that through Jesus' perfect life that he gives to those who believe in him. And so this is a fixed point in our interpretation. He did this. He did this through Jesus Christ. So far, so good. Now we get on from there. And we get into deeper weeds. And we get into deeper weeds just because 
we don't understand perhaps as much as Daniel did with the context. And here we, we learn about some characters. We learn about an anointed one, verse 25, anointed one, we could translate that Messiah, an anointed one, a prince. So there's an anointed one who's a prince in verse 25. And then if you go to 26, it says there is an anointed one. And then there is a prince, the people of the prince. And there, is all sort, there are all sorts of different interpretations about who is the anointed one who is a prince, who is the anointed one, and who is the prince. You see, there's not even agreement about who the main characters of this prophecy are. Some ideas, just to tell you, just to give you an idea of how, how complicated they can, this can get. The anointed one who is a prince is identified as Cyrus the king, as Zerubbabel the governor, as Joshua the priest, or as Jesus Christ. There, those are just four of the options out there. The prince who is to come is identified as Antiochus Epiphanes, whom we met last week, or Christ, or the Antichrist. Yes, exactly. So, so this, this prince who is to come is identified as either Christ, in some versions, or as the Antichrist. You see how difficult this can get. And the covenant is identified as the new covenant, or it's identified as the covenant, a covenant with the Antichrist. So either the, this, this prince who is to come is a, a good character, or he's a bad character. The covenant he establishes is either good or bad. You see, this can get very complicated. Now, what I'm going to do is give you my current understanding and, and tell you a little bit why I do this. Well, if we have here in two consecutive verses, we have a prince who is an anointed one, and then in the next verse, we have an anointed one, and we have a prince, I'm going to assume that it's all the same person. Just for simplicity's sake, and because that's generally how we use language. If we refer to someone, and then we refer to one of those titles in the next verse, we're probably talking about the same person. Now, the difficulty of that, the difficulty of that is says that the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood to the end that there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Make strong covenant with many for one week. Half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That sounds like a negative person, doesn't it? It sounds like one who comes and, and wreaks havoc. But could this be Christ? Let's look at this. Look at, verse, look at verse 24. It says that, Know therefore and understand from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a Messiah, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, seven sevens. Sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Jesus the Messiah was cut off from the land of the living and had nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Could that refer to Jesus as well? Yes, it could. Because in 70 AD, the city and the sanctuary were destroyed. Forty years after the coming of Jesus. He was cut off, he was left with nothing, and then his people, it says, the people of the prince, who shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, the Romans destroyed the city and the sanctuary, but they destroyed the city, city and the sanctuary because of the rebellion of Jesus' people, the Jews. That's why that destruction, they rejected the Messiah, and so they lost their city and their sanctuary. And it says that he shall make a strong covenant with many. Jesus made the new covenant with many, both Jews and with Gentiles. 
for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Jesus did, by his death, put an end to sacrifice and offering. Sacrifice and offering are no longer necessary. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. The sanctuary was destroyed because it was obsolete, because there is no more need for sacrifice, because Jesus made the final sacrifice. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator, the Romans eventually also were taken out. So that's my understanding at this point. And it's not, uh, not wholly, uh, wholly without basis in the scripture itself, because if you look at Matthew, Matthew chapter 24, which we read earlier in the service, Jesus, in his only reference to Daniel, says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And then you go and you look at Luke 21, the same, the same speech that Jesus gave, but the way Luke translated, tra- translates it is this. When you see foreign armies surrounding Jerusalem. And when did that happen? That happened in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And so it looks like that's what Daniel was, was, was seeing, foreseeing, that Jesus would come, that he would make an end to the need for sacrifice by sacrificing himself, and therefore that obsolete temple would be taken out because of the sins of the Jews, but also because of the desolations of the Romans. Now, whether or not we get all these details right, and I told you this is my current understanding, we can say with absolute certainty that Jesus is the one who shows us God's mercy. Jesus is the one who puts an end to sin. Jesus is the one who atones for our iniquity. Jesus is the one who gives us an eternal righteousness before God. Jesus is the one who made the offerings and the temple obsolete by offering the perfect sacrifice of himself on the cross. Let's pray. Our God, we have roamed through the depths of sin, the heights of your mercy, the mysteries of your providence, the predictions about about desolations and restorations, and we come back to Jesus, and we rest in him. And Lord, we, we pray that we would learn to confess our sins. We pray that we would learn to turn from them and find your mercy. We pray that we would learn to pray and plead that your name would be glorified by your grace being manifested in sinners like us and that it would go to the ends of the earth. And we pray, thanking you, that Jesus is the one who put an end to the endless sacrifices, the need for the priests and the temple and all that was involved, and that he made that one final sacrifice for sins so that we might be forgiven and have eternal righteousness before you. And we pray giving thanks to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.